Welcome to the Fiber for Breakfast podcast, a series that discusses fiber as the critical infrastructure for today's growing broadband needs. Listen in as Gary Bolton, CEO and President of the Fiber Broadband Association, speaks with industry thought leaders and experts about connectivity issues and the impact on the remote workplace. I hope you enjoy today's discussion, which will start momentarily. And remember to subscribe and like this podcast on your favorite platform. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Fiber Broadband Association's Five for Breakfast. We're now in our 29th episode of 2022. Before we kick off, I'd like to thank our sponsors of Five for Breakfast, including our gold sponsors, Graybar and Vetro. Last week, the FCC chairwoman circulated a notice of inquiry that proposes to increase the national broadband standard from the FCC's current definition of 25 megabits downstream, three megabits upstream, to 100 by 20. Given that the NTIB broadband infrastructure program is funding underserved and unserved areas under 100 by 20, it seems like the FCC's dated definition of broadband is kind of a moot point. You know, it's disappointing that the government seems to lag significantly behind the market. You know, we had Jamie Lindemann from Omnion um, Fire for Breakfast a few weeks ago, and she cited one of her recent surveys that revealed that 88% of ISPs in the U.S. are offering one gigabit or greater for under 100 bucks. Her research also revealed that the majority of fiber ISPs are now deploying 10 gig symmetric fiber to the home. The FCC chairwoman also told the U.S. Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation, or Transport, that the billion Congress has appropriated to rip out and replace Huawei and ZT equipment from our nation's communications network. It's not going to be enough money. The FCC has estimated that the bill is is going to be more in the range of $4.7 billion to $4.98 billion. You know, it's disappointing that we allowed Chinese gear to get in our network and that taxpayers are now getting stuck with the bill. On a brighter note, JJ sent me the final agenda for our next regional Fiber Connect workshop in Copper Mountain Resort in Colorado on August 23rd. And the speaker lineup is amazing. This is going to be our best regional Fiber Connect workshop to date. Our final Fiber Connect workshop for the year is going to be in Columbus, Ohio on November 3rd. Both workshops are going to sell out quickly, so please register today. Um, For today's Fire for Breakfast session, we are going to be discussing, are you ready for Make Ready with Sean Middleton from Finley Engineering. Fire for Breakfast, we discuss moose, lobsters, blueberries, and broadband with Peggy Schaefer of Connect Maine Authority. You know, Peggy is just doing an amazing job in getting fiber deployed across Maine. And I look forward to seeing her and all the state broadband directors in a couple weeks in Denver. Um, This week's topic is, are you ready for Make Ready with Sean Middleton from Finley Engineering. Sean is going to discuss the role of utility pole infrastructure and the Make Ready process that's required before they can support fiber broadband deployment. Sean Middleton is the Director of Strategy and Operations at Finley Engineering Company. Sean is an accomplished professional engineer with more than 25 years of experience, which includes expertise in electrical engineering, distribution systems operation management, design and maintenance of electrical um, systems, and consulting on many today's regulatory and compliance issues. With his background in the development of broadband networks, he helps energy and telecoms clients in meeting RES requirements and standards and staying up to date on legislative funding, 
providing project management support, wireless, fiber to the premise, and consulting on smart grid initiatives. He has a BS in electrical engineering from Bradley University and MBA from the University of Illinois at Springfield. So welcome, Sean. And for our audience, please type in your questions as we go, and we'll work them into the Q&A at the end of this talk. With that, I'm going to turn it over to Sean. Very good. Gary, thanks for that very much. And obviously, thanks to Fiber Broadband Association for this opportunity. And um, we see this, I mean, I do personally see this as a very important topic and very appropriate for today's age we're in. You're just discussing all the things that are happening on the broadband front. And so I, I think it's uh, very pertinent to what we're discussing. So if we could have this moment to go through some of the, the high-level parts of this that uh, maybe make it uh, substantive to what we're talking about, that's the, my intention for today. So Finley, uh, the only thing I like to note on Finley is that um, you know we've, we've done both the energy and the telecom sides for a long time. Both of them started back in the 50s. So uh, What's interesting is now utility operators that are entering the fray, being involved in the broadband arena, uh, th there's this interesting mix of the synergy between what needs to happen with smart grid adaptation in addition to what's happening with broadband and furthering the development there. So next slide, we just wanted to highlight Finley's abilities in both those areas. Uh, the only thing I'll note on uh, that, in addition to my background, I like to, uh, here I'm with a consulting firm and sometimes people look at that with uh, positive or negative, I don't know how you want to view that, but I actually came from uh, the operations side. I was with an electric co-op for over 23 years uh, doing distribution engineering, but also we got into fixed wireless and fiber optics, everything as we were deploying broadband there. And so my point in this discussion is that this isn't simply consultant speak. This is uh, going to come from my experience of having done this myself. So really, truly, the, the challenge that we're trying to identify here for looking at this is, you know, those entities that are trying to identify need, whether an entity is looking to become an ISP or facilitate, and that's really the key consideration that we're trying to highlight here is that um, as a utility operator, for instance, many of them are looking at their pole lines suggesting what could they be leveraged. And obviously, those telecom clients or others that have done broadband Further in that development are burying their assets. But with an aerial pole line availability, it brings the potential for lower cap capex costs and others and possibly speed of deployment in many cases, depending on permitting right away and other issues, challenges that are going to come up. So identifying that need and, and furthering that position of, for one, does a utility entity want to be an ISP itself? Many are taking that leap, moving forward very handily with that discussion, but others are more reserved and they're watching and perhaps looking at being a follower in this endeavor. But the big consideration that even those entities that are sitting around listening to their boards that hear from their constituents, and I hear this all, all the time, that's the reason I'm bringing this up as a talking point, is whether they're doing ISP services and, and furthering broadband development or themselves or not, their constituents want it. In those unserved, underserved areas, they're wanting to see something happen. And so the interesting challenge for utility or pole line operators is, one, can you facilitate others even if you don't want to be an ISP yourself? And two, what, having that ownership, how can you make your rights of way advantageous for those that would like to serve broadband through this? You know, I just, I thought it'd be kind of instructive as Gary and I were talking to, to highlight maybe a couple of case study examples. It's, it's always better to have something that's more 
concrete as you're discussing these things. And I can give you a couple of examples, for instance, on clients that I have worked with or even some of my experience directly. But, um, you know, when you look at, when we talk about make ready, and most people understand what I mean, but the, it, for those that need just that quick primer, is what is it going to take in order to have space available for fiber optics or other communications to go through there in the communication space? And we're going to, actually, if you don't mind, step, go ahead and step forward a slide. I think it's the next slide. Uh, yeah, let's use this one just quickly because it's good to have that definition in place. The communication space per NESC, National Electric Safety Code, is 40 inches below the supply space or the last part of conducting means that are in, in the electrical supply. And there's a 40 inch gap there before you can readily have assets available. This troubles many rural utility operators because if the poles are typically not had a lot of joint use activity, are they tall enough in order to have 40 inches below, put communication cables in play, and still meet code requirements for, for vertical clearance? The John Deere and Case International combines and such are not getting any shorter, and rural utility operators know they've got to have plenty of space to meet code and to have uh, ability to put these in there. So the question is, getting your hands around what does it look like in my system to enable that kind of interconnectivity? And uh, now you can go back a slide then if you want to, just to kind of reference. As I'm talking about some case study examples, I, I can reference at least one, and this is an electric co-op, it just so happens, doing fiber to the prem type study, looking at broadband, pursuing grants to fund the capital development of the fiber itself. But one important consideration is, of course, that the make ready cost can be rolled into most grant proceeds. And we'll, we can touch on that here and again in a moment. but it can be very much a part of the discussion as you're planning for fiber optics to know that the poles that need replaced, and perhaps they're part of your normal construction work plan, they could be uh, embedded in that in future endeavors as you're looking at what replacements need to have naturally within my utility space. But for sure, if you're going to facilitate someone coming through, the question is, is that pole line ready today? And Many people will get very nervous if you do a normal pole inspection process on a, a utility or an aerial asset uh, plant system. You know, I've seen, you know, people love to say my rejection rate, meaning I've studied the number of poles that need to be assessed and maybe 10% of them need changed out if I'm gonna add assets and have enough height or they're just older, they're not thick enough, there's not enough capacity to handle an extra cable. Those key critical considerations have to be addressed ahead of time to know what your total costs are gonna be. Those are just gonna to add to the CapEx of the total project if you don't know what you're getting into. And so the example I'm giving is, uh, it's interesting that in today's age, we have come up with more technological solutions to help with this endeavor. For instance, uh, you can say many would, are maybe 10% is a good reject rate if you're studying a pole line fan, you know, 10% of these poles are gonna need changed out in order to facilitate new communication cables and meet comm space requirements. Um, I've seen people get up there into the 20s, 30s, or higher, depending on the pole line, how long ago it was replaced. Uh, there's some of those old-fashioned REA poles that are 1940s still standing that they're great. They were paid for themselves long ago, but they may not be ready for us to put communication cables on and move that thing down the road. So, But what I, I, what I am suggesting is not only making a proper assessment of those poles to know where you stand is the critical consideration, but knowing that technology can allow further development. For instance, 
utility operators that are able to take advantage of like an ADSS, an all dialectic cable, can put those up into the supply space with certified journeyman linemen that are handling the, the installation needs. And then bringing your junction points back below into the communication space for telecom personnel who aren't journeyman certified to be able to make it take advantage of that. In that instance, I've seen co-ops bring their make ready reject rates down back down into formidable levels, back down to 10% in one case I'm looking at. Um, and a, as a similar fashion, middle mile type projects, I have one going in another state and very similar uh, position. And in that case, they're able to do maybe a bit of a mixed bag where they are able to stay in the comp place where they've got plenty of space, plenty of height, know they're gonna have others that are gonna be interconnecting, tap requirements and such. So putting it fully in the comp space and having plenty of room where they don't have to worry about so much make ready is advantageous. But for those areas where they know it's going to be more expensive to change out that many poles, they're able to take advantage of all dielectric cables using the supply space and, and lowering their make ready costs. So, and, and this is just an interesting discussion as I bring this topic up and kind of in total as we're, we're trying to unpack this a bit about what it takes because it takes a firm assessment, but this is an interesting discussion for those entities that own their own pole line and are either, they could be looking to do something themselves or they're looking to facilitate. But what's amazing is communication needs are not gonna go backwards. What we need for smart grid endeavors and other things are gonna to continue to go, the bandwidth requirements are gonna to continue to rise. So the, the communication means that pole line operators are using today may not be ex adequate going forward. But the question is, if you build it, what's the, what can happen once you're able to have a smarter communication means going down your pole line, facilitating fiber broadband development, but now having smart grid endeavor potential that you're able to do something with as well. And so this is kind of maybe next steps, where do we go from here? We're kind of trying to bound this a bit. Uh, we see people asking that question. So what do I do, Sean? What are we, what are we talking about here? You know, I'm either looking into doing broadband or I, my members need it. I'm in an unserved, underserved community. What can we do? You know, the first thing is, and it starts with that, that formal study effort. Yeah, you can look at individual corridors that might be advantageous for maybe a middle mile path or potential fiber to the prem de deployment that could happen in those regions where it's gonna make sense. It starts from a full make ready study, an assessment of your pole line. Yes, we are able to pull the GIS assets, determine you know, by pole branding and date what's out there. We can do a, a kind of an office assessment, if you will, to get a, a high level of where you might stand, but then it becomes a bit of a kick the tires, boots on the ground uh, discussion, even a GPS inventory to know what's there. And then there's also a bit of internal discussion where it comes back to broadband need, broadband desires, broadband wants, or, or especially around the board table, but then smart grid interoperability, what can be facilitated by this uh, happening. And I, I mainly wanna comment as we're talking about this here that with the grant availability today, those that have been gun shy and have been uneasy about what to do and how to move forward, there's never been a better time than now to want to look at this potential and see what can happen. What, where you stand with Make Ready, what it's going to do to impact potential CapEx for doing broadband, whether you did it yourself or whether you facilitate others. And that's where it comes back to feasibility studies. Uh, we do those too. We don't just build. Sometimes we help people assess what's the competitive landscape, what's in the area, what's it going to take to 
build, um, what's the payback, what grants are available to help with that. And, and so just a very key consideration as you're looking through all the facets of what it's going to take. And, and I, I do mention that as kind of a final uh, note there, that supply versus comp space, I'm referring to the electrical supply for the, at the top of the pole line versus the comp space requirements. It's just a critical consideration to know what entities are going to work on the cables, who's going to own it and operate it, and then what access or feasibility is there. And so that just factors into the discussion as to what you can do and how you can make something work for you. Okay, I believe that was kind of the, the meat, and, meat and potatoes of what we were trying to discuss as we were bringing up some of these things. I assume Gary will want to get into the weeds if there's any follow-on discussion from the pieces we're talking about. Yeah, thanks, John. Um, yeah, one of your examples uh, there looks almost like Brazil when I was in Sao Paulo. The poles are about to fall over. They had so much cable on them. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. How much can you put in the communications um, zone? I mean, I know it depends on the height of the pole, but it, right. like, you know, like when I was down again, you know, in um, South America, it was crazy how much they were loading on poles. Yes. And and a pole that is actually a whole different. Uh, it's really related to make ready, but people refer in the industry to something called a PLA analysis, which is a pole loading analysis. And you can do that for individual uh, projects or a, a series, let's say a, a broadband project moving through an area. And many people are doing that very thing. They're analyzing the pole for structural integrity, doing an inventory asset of what's there. And when it comes to number of attachments, you know, there becomes the the National Electric Safety Code is, are we making code clearance over wherever we're crossing, traversing, street, road, fence, you know, field, whatever you want to call it. But then there becomes the, the feasibility of what is the uh, strength of the pole to handle the number of attachers that are there. You know, there's a clearance spacing issue. Then there becomes a, uh, what do you call a bending moment of the pole, basically. How thick is it? Is it thick enough to handle enough the extra weight I'm putting on it, and can it stand based on where you build your poles? If you're in the we're in the Midwest here, we build in a uh, you know heavy loading, so much ice, so much wind kind of uh, re requirement. So really, Gary, it does come back to where you live, location, location, but then also it's it matter how much physically and the weight you're putting up there more than the so than the number of attachers per se. So what, I mean, you mentioned, you know, to get your John Deere on you there. What is the vertical clearance typically? I know it's going to vary. Yeah, right? it, yeah, it's going to vary. Uh, for for National Electric Safety Code, just off the top of my head, you know, uh, most people are looking for, uh, I believe, code clearance on a neutral 18 foot over road. If I remember, serves communication cable can be below because of you're 40 inches down, but you're still, no one's going to go below 15 feet. Or, uh, um, Typically, you know, that kind of, yes, if you're going along a field line, right in line with the fence, there are lower requirements unless you have a, a road crossing or a field entrance, that kind of stuff. It does vary by location, but um, here's the other thing that's important. People can build a pole line and it is built according to the code that was established when it was put in. If you put that pole line in in 1978, 1978 National Electric Safety Code rules, unless you add to it, now you got to bring it up to current code. And some pole owners have not thought that through that, well, I've touched this thing, I've added to it, now I got to bring it up to current compliance. So important consideration. So one of the comments that just came in says that with rural low density, folks will use distributed splitters. 
What types of fiber counts are you seeing? You know, all over the board. Um, and even I've, I've seen kind of a mixed bag, even in some rural areas, they're still doing some home run, but obviously there's distributed split, distributed uh, different formats. And I know there's more of a the individual logic. And we, as, as a consulting firm, some people come to us and say, I'm already doing it this way and we're gonna build it the way they say. Um, the fiber count and the way they are able to bundle, you know, you look at those ribbon uh, fibers and how tightly they're able to pack. I mean, 144 cable is not very big physically anymore and the weight has come down considerably. So, um, you know, I'll see a lot of people, they're home running, I'm seeing cables up 144, 288, maybe 432, so you, sometimes you're gonna get up there. Yeah, when you're down into your distributed split type methodologies, I see many people getting down into the 48, 72 counts and making an adequate run. Uh, but it's just amazing. You look at a 48 versus a 144, there's not a ton of physical difference anymore in size and then some, a bit of weight consideration. It really comes back to what your splicing methodology is going to be and how you're going to treat taps and other. Uh, and I see entities really making that decision more than they are concerned about the fiber counts themselves. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, I was at an event this weekend with some operators and I seem to consistently hear this is um, they always say put in twice what you think you need. Uh, exactly. Exactly. I would fully echo that because you're going to, yeah, you can do wave splits and other things like that to make better use of what you have. But while you're putting it in, the glass is one of the cheapest components of your total CapEx. Your labor to put it there and permit it and make the pull line ready is going to be more substantial than the piece of glass itself. So, yeah, I totally agree with that sentiment. More glass. So part of the B program, resiliency is a key area. Um, a consideration and so you know we see like Gulf Coast you know weather events and Pacific Northwest with forest fires so there's a lot of focus on buried uh, so what I mean I know it's going to depend on topology you know like Keith Gabbert from Kentucky had to have his um, old bub his mule pull fiber on their aerial poles but yes where, where are you what do you see the split between aerial and underground yeah that's interesting and and I know some things can, can change that facilitation based on maybe you're in an urban environment and the, the pole loading or the make ready from the incumbent uh, utility is just excessive and it facilitates the need for the underground. But one of the resiliency requirement pieces that you kind of noted, and that is one of the first things people will bring up. They'll say, if you're gonna put it in the air, now it's exposed. Well, granted, it's exposed underground, you can dig into it, but obviously you would assume not as often as what the aerial exposure might be. But the thing is, when you design these well, when Finley looks at a, uh, an area and is gonna design for an entity, we're not thinking radial tap serve however many X consumers. It's, it's gonna be loop topology and no one point of failure to take networks down. And so, so the trade-off on lowering your CapEx in order to take advantage of aerial pole line can be offset by re redundancy in the way your design structure. I would wholeheartedly say, Whoever, any designer worth their salt should be putting that into the mix so that you, not one, any failure is going to take any, a network down. So this is a good question that just came in. This, uh, and this gets into the whole FCC proceeding on um, pole replacements. But for poles with several attachers, who's responsible for moving the cables and paying for uh, when make ready is required? Is one touch make ready feasible? Yes, that's a great one, and that keeps coming up. And I know every jurisdiction has a different view on this. I mean, I've seen plenty of, uh, I've had it 
in former neighborhoods I lived, and you, you know what happens is the 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 pole owner wants to change out, and he's literally sawed sections of the pole off and attached them to his new pole and let everybody else spend for themselves on on what they're going to do with their assets, and maybe they sit up there for a while until somebody catches it if they didn't notify. So so most definitely that be, does become you know there's a lot of merit back and forth on this topic on yes there could be a streamlining effect that would allow everybody to um, kind of, you know, like I said, one touch, I mean, make it simplistic, but bringing everybody to the same page without some sort of legislative piece, is that the best way to put that, is going to be challenging. And so I'm curious to see how that continues. And in the interim, it is going to be the poll owner kind of does control. He can be a good neighbor as best he can, help there's notification in, in place until we get to a point where there's something more holistic that helps us define that. How's that? Uh, so this is a good one too. So in a situation where you mentioned when an operator built on the 1978 standard, uh, is there a risk formula to use to understand, you know, what that risk is when you're trying to do your assessment? Um, that's interesting. We, um, I don't know that we have a specific formula. I think if anything, when we're doing assessments, and I kind of mentioned this, that um, we will go to, for those entities that do have some poll data or have some better record keeping in, in place rather than doing a field assessment first, the, the quicker we can do a database assessment of poll brand date and see where you stand, um, that can be factored in because the desktop reject rate assessment will be very helpful in focusing the field effort. So we do see that. I don't know that we have a necessarily, necessarily a formula-based formula approach other than the more we can feed into the the model that we're discussing, the better we are ahead of time and we're able to focus effort. Because one thing that can happen from the desktop analysis, so to speak, it can determine perhaps this poll line, maybe this other one's better suited than this one and focus our efforts so we don't have to maybe do that in-depth study on as many poll lines. So there is a way to, to make my, our workload less because of some more focused effort. How's that? So what are you seeing, you know, when I look at the FCC proceeding, you know, on um, poll replacements, you know, you get these polls that have been out there a long time and you just happen to be the last guy on, you're paying the bill. Um, is there a way to amortize this across all the people that are, um, I mean, obviously, if someone's been enjoying that poll for, you know, 50 years or whatever it is, um, mm -hmm. is, is there a way to share costs or is it just last guy on? It. It, there does come a bit of that for sure. I mean, you're, you're the last guy and you're trying to impose something um, and, and bringing things up to current code, that kind of stuff. That I don't know that we have a perfect answer for that solution. The biggest thing that I see that is changing, so to speak, is for poll owners that are trying to facilitate that, are, that better communication is able to come about, not just for constituents because everybody's looking for more broadband, especially unserved, underserved. I do see that changing uh, utility operators' mindset a bit, where they're wanting to be a facilitator. They, who wants to be against bringing better broadband to unserved, underserved, and who wants to be on the wrong side of that issue? The more urban environments is where that becomes more of a challenge. I think it, it's a little bit easier to cross that politically in the rural environments, which is really where we're trying to make a big focus, because they're the ones that don't have it. The urban environments are going to be a challenge. Um, continuing and and until that gets solved or the pole line is brought up to current, I think that we're going to continue to walk that path a bit more. 
All right, so this is kind of a long question, but it's a good one. All right, do you see that more and more utilities are updating their poles due to climate change, damage in parts of the country, and thus making make-ready costs or you know would be going down for projects? Or there's still a lot of outdated infrastructure out there that needs replacing? Okay, that's that's actually a really good question, and I, I've seen this a bit all over. Granted, if you're a utility operator that's been along the coast and you have a hurricane every few years, it's a little different story. So you're in a more, uh, you know, storms are more remote and they're occasional and those kinds of things. Here's one thing we are seeing is, um, and and this is an exciting potential. We are starting to see some utility operators that are looking at their assets. Granted, some are the early adopters. They're the ones that are trying to become an ISP. They're moving forward and they're getting their arms around this quickly. But we are seeing maybe these late bloomers or fast followers that are watching the market and saying, we need that in our area. And I already have a pole line that needs replaced in my four-year construction plan. Why can't I adapt, expand, or add to when I'm financing my four-year planning arrangement with my lender? Why can't I add strategic pole lines to that and enable ComSpace functionality underbuild provisions right now, whether I have it or not? If you build it, will they come? It's kind of that, that question. And we are starting to see some operators catching wind of it. But the point of this discussion even today, Gary, to be frank, is trying to whet the appetite of those that haven't quite, they're not quite there. They're, they're following, they're watching, being very mindful. But if you can put it into your, your construction work plan funding anyway, you're ahead of the game. So get ready for make ready. Well, thanks, Sean. A great discussion. And I know we have a, a million questions here, so hopefully you can answer some of those offline. But I really appreciate you sharing your insights and expertise with our audience today. And thanks everyone for joining us and look forward to getting back together next Wednesday. Where we're going to be discussing revitalizing Appalachian communities through broadband with Curtis Hansen, the broadband program manager at the Appalachian uh, Regional Commission, who's going to be discussing investment in broadband projects in the region and how the agency is aiding economic opportunity for the people who live there. So you're not going to want to miss that. We'll see you guys next Wednesday. And thanks a lot, Sean. We'll see you soon.